Hi, I'm Lee Child, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. I have no agenda. I come in a blank canvas. It can go terribly wrong. Good. That's the sort of thing I like. <laughs> All right, great. We're living on the edge. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Lee Child. He's the editor of the Nicotine Chronicles, an anthology out now on Akashic Books. He's also the author of The Sentinel, his 25th novel in the Jack Reacher series, and first one co-authored by his brother, Andrew. Lee, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. How are you? I'm okay. Um, the, your, this is your first book that you co-authored with your brother, is that correct? Yeah, The Sentinel is the 25th Reacher, as you said. And uh, the, the first one, it's a transition period. I mean, it's not that we're going to co-author all the way through. The idea is that, uh, you know, we're going to do a two or three together, maybe until he finds his feet and uh, becomes totally confident about it. And then um, he's going to step forward and I'm going to step back. How does that affect you emotionally? Well, that's a great question. You know, that is a great question because there's a, there's a whole bunch of uh, conflicting or, you know, there's a bunch of strands and it's a question of finding out which is the most important. And sure, I mean, it's been fantastic for 24 years, uh, you know, a slow build, to be honest, at the beginning. But then for the last sort of 15 years, I mean, what a ride. It's just been amazing. Um, but it's been amazing because the books were good or as good as I could make them. And that's the key point that at the beginning, I promised myself and therefore implied promise to the reader. I would never, ever phone it in, which is something that happens, you know, with a long running series, there are many examples in history where, you can see the author just getting old, getting tired, getting bored, um, churning them out according to some kind of formula. And there's often a big droop in quality and the reader buys them out of loyalty and so on and then eventually gets disappointed and gives up. So I promised myself I would never phone it in. And I never have. And I will always be proud of that. I've always given 110% to every book and made them as good as I possibly could. But recently, I, it was on my mind, I cannot keep this going forever. It takes a certain level of energy, passion, ideas, youth, to be frank. You know, it's, yeah. uh, you've got to be, you've got to be at the absolute top of your game. And I became aware this could not continue forever. And so it was a question of what to do next. I wasn't going to deliver a compromised product. So it was really a question of saying the series will have to end, which was a huge disappointment to me because I've grown to love the readers, you know, the people that are dispassionate about Reacher. Um, I didn't want to let them down. I didn't want to leave them with nothing. So I got the idea of asking my brother to, to carry the series on. And he is a guy very similar to me. We're half a generation apart in age. He's the kind of late mistake in the family. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure he wears a shirt that's uh, that's proud of that, right? He's like, I'm the late mistake. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he knows it. I think our parents actually sort of admitted it at one point. 
but that's but that's great though with the, with your with your parents to i mean it just it shows there's still like love there right and it's it, it, you're like the last thing you want to do is think about your parents having sex yeah exactly. but then you want to know they're still in love you know yeah it was uh you know it was definitely not supposed to happen because uh, we were a family of three brothers essentially i was the middle of three and that's how it was, and that's how it looked it would be forever. But then this late fourth one showed up. And as he grew a little older, I mean, by the time he was five or six years old, I, I recognized that he and I were very similar uh -huh. in a way that I hadn't been to my other two brothers or my parents. The, I had always felt like a stranger in my family to the point where I was sure, you know, they'd mix me up at the hospital or something. Uh -huh. Then Andrew was born, and as soon as he developed his own little personality, I realized, yeah, actually, there is something to genetics after all. You know, he is, he is me. And so... So the, so the mistake, actually, was uh, it gave you a sense of relief to, to know that you had a fit in this family? Yeah, and, you yeah. know, and the, although it also gave me a responsibility because I... I I'm a fun guy, you know, I like to do whatever I want to do. And my whole attitude is uh, have fun and, and, and don't worry about the consequences. And it was in a family that was super doer and repressed and that classic middle class thing of constantly postponing gratification and oh. because, you know, yeah, it, something better would come along. It was very Puritan. I mean, no overt religion, but it was like Calvinist Puritan everything was frowned upon, especially anything that was uh, frivolous or anything related to having a good time was uh -huh. frowned upon. So it was a rather oppressive kind of upbringing. And then I saw Andrew 15 years later going through the same emotions. And so he and I became, even though there was a huge disparity in age at that point, you know, the difference between a five-year-old and a 20-year-old is huge. But I recognized myself in him. And weirdly, even as a little boy, he recognized uh, me in himself. And so we became this unlikely pair of allies. And then as you grew up, the age difference becomes less significant. Although in this instance, it is significant because he is this half generation younger than me. And it's like going back to myself 15 years ago when I was, you know, full of energy and ideas. And so that's why I thought, could he do it? Would he do it? And so I asked him and, and he said, yeah. And so here we are, we've done the first one and we'll do certainly next year's together. And then as he owns the series more and more, he will step forward, I'll step back into blissful retirement. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> can you really blissfully retire or do you have other like um projects and writing ideas that are percolating where you're like wait a second okay there's an opening after these uh af after you know almost when you come to the end of your part of the jack reacher novels i guess i asked the question about 10 minutes ago but i added <laughs> stuff sorry about that <laughs> it's that is actually a, a really good question because it leads to another really essential question which is what is writing actually what is it and it is it's two things writing one is the speculation the daydreaming 
you know, you lay back on the sofa and you think, well, what if, what if this, or what if this turned out to be something different than we think it is? What if A was actually B? What if C was actually D and then everything collided? The, the daydreaming aspect is huge in writing. But then the rest of it is business. You know, you sit there typing for six months and then you promote and you do all that kind of business related stuff. So there's two definite halves, the fun part and then the chore. And I will obviously always do the fun part because I always have. I mean, it's not possible for me to just um, sit down. You know, I'm always dreaming or speculating or making shit up. And uh, I will always do that because I always have. But will I do the business side, the six months of typing and, and all that kind of thing, the negotiations, the promotion tours? No, I won't do that. I'm just going to enjoy the private part of writing, which is the most fun. And I won't publish anything anymore. And I, I really won't be involved anymore. I'm an all or nothing person. I'm either in or I'm out. Wow. I, that's... That's, that's intriguing because in that that just um, it shows the dedication to Jack Reacher as a character because um, you don't have to promote you don't you know you could say forget about it this is the next one but at the same time uh, you would be doing a disservice to uh, Jack Reacher the character is that am I getting that right Yeah I mean the, it's. Uh... There's no question that latterly the Reacher series has been immense and has huge commercial momentum, but it's really unproven. You know, nobody ever quite has the guts to say, I'm going to do no promotion at all and let's see what happens. There are so many people that depend on it. You know, not it's not about me. It's about the publisher. It's about the book trade, um, the bookstores. All of those people are nervous constantly, as they should be, because, you know, it's a vulnerable trade, especially this year. Oh, and yeah. so the promotion thing is, in a sense, it is just going through the routine because it's always been done that way. And so it would be super radical to stop doing it. Mm -hmm. so, so in a way, I think, to be honest, there is an obligation to promote. If you're writing, you really can't say to your publisher, no, I'm not doing anything because it is, you know, that's a bit of sand in the gears. It's a little uncooperative. It's, uh, it's a team effort at that point. Writing is totally solo. But then as soon as you deliver the manuscript, it becomes a big team effort that includes hundreds of people, you know, from jacket designers, text designers, the salespeople, all the way down to the lowliest register clerk in the bookstore. They all somehow... You know, they've all got a vested interest. They all depend on it. And you cannot let them down. You can't cold shoulder them. And, the, and part of the beauty of just the whole industry in general, I believe, is, well, in my, in my optimistic heart, I feel like we're, we're all fans of just the written word. So even a, even a cashier at a bookstore for the most, you know, some of them probably don't want the job, but a lot of them are there because they are readers and they, and they, they want to point you in the right direction. When you ask a question, they, there's that passion. 
I hope. <laughs> You're, yeah, you are absolutely right about that. There's, I mean, in the big bookstore change, you're going to find some uh, sort of general issue workers that don't care what whether they're selling books or apples or whatever. But generally speaking, you're right. Yeah, people, people love books and you come across them in the bookstores. And uh, generally speaking, they're fantastic. Uh, and you can really define that by looking back to pre-internet. The internet has helped an enormous amount in terms of informing people. And, um, you know, if you vaguely hear about some kind of a book with vaguely part of the title or something like that, or part of the plot, you can usually find it within five minutes on the internet. But before that, you couldn't. You had no chance at all. And I well remember in the 1980s, um, I was working in television and I had one friend who was... Uh, a big reader like me with very similar tastes. And we would try to uh, inform each other if we ever heard of anything good. And I remember this guy saying to me, I was just heading out for my lunch break. And he said, I heard about a great book. Um, I haven't read it yet, I haven't got it, but it was titled something to do with lambs. And that was all he told me. <clears throat> so I dropped into the bookstore during my lunch break. And I said to the clerk, this guy at work told me about this great book. He's not really sure anything about it, but its title is something to do with lambs. And before I'd finished speaking, this guy behind the register had run over to the shelf and brought me Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. Now, that, that is the kind of commitment and, and knowledge and quality you get from a good bookstore. And uh, it's a lovely thing, it really is. I, and the beauty of the bookstore also is just the community you have, you know, I just, there's someone I can go to and talk and just talk and go, okay, wait a second. I liked this. I liked that. What do you think? You know, it's. Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That's, it's brilliant for that, that they have got a, um, uh, a sort of database uh, or an algorithm in their head. And you're quite right. You say, I liked a, I liked B, what should I read next? And, um, they can steer you in a way that is fabulous because we have no chance individually. You know, there are so many books published. I believe, you know, I, I, can't, I can't be sure, but probably six figures, 100,000 books a year are published. How are you going to find your way through that? You, you need the guidance. And I agree, the internet these days with um, hundreds of passionate fan forums and genre forums and so on are great for that. But ultimately, you still need that bookselling expertise. And I know lots of booksellers like that. They love it, too. They love it when a customer walks in and says, what should I read? Because then you have the conversation. And it makes the customer feel good because, you know, deeply enthusiastic readers are pretty much a minority. And so it's comforting to be able to talk to somebody who talks your language. Yeah. And we, got this, we have the same interest. But it's we just we're just fans. Yeah. Um, as when when your when your first book came out and you got to see it in the shelves at the bookstore, what what was that like for you? It was that was only stage one. Seeing it on the shelf in the bookstore is great, of course, because now it's real. It's happening. You know, it's no longer a hope or a theory. It is actually true. But what you really want is to see somebody reading it. <laughs> You want it off the shelf, exactly. and so they have to reorder. 
on the shelf is great, but not quite great enough. Uh, you know, you want it, you want it flying off the shelf. And so the real, the real milestone, I think, for any author is to find, see somebody who is not your mother reading your book uh, in, a, in some kind of context. And I remember that more, actually, than seeing it first on the shelf. Um, I took a vacation, and um, I, by the pool, there was somebody lying on a lounger reading the book, uh, you know, a complete stranger, somebody I had nothing to do with. And, and that was the reality for me. That was because, seriously, a book is a transaction. I always say, first, a book is written, then it is read, then it exists. It does not exist until the reader has read it. Um, the reader creates it just as much as the writer. It's a two-way street. It's a partnership. And so writing it is not enough. It has to be read. And then it exists. And the happy thing about that is that most books, yeah, they do. They, they are read. Um, even what we would call the least successful book, uh, you know, it's got a few readers. Um, you know, you, first of all, you get one reader, then you get two, then you get 200, then you get 2,000. And really, by the time you get to 2,000, I think that you're, you're a success because 2,000 people is far more than we can know individually within our social group. I mean, if you, wanted, if you had 2,000 readers and you wanted to take them, each one of them separately out to dinner to say thank you, you would be, uh, it would take you more than five years. So 2,000 readers is a significant milestone, in my opinion. And uh, almost everybody gets to 2,000 readers. So really, there's a lot of commonality between the massive bestsellers and the least successful authors. We're all in the same boat. We've all got an audience that we cannot know personally, and therefore we are all successes in, in that transactional sense. Now... If the reader paid for all those dinners, each individual reader, <laughs> I think there's a game plan there. Well, you're not, you're not kidding there, actually, because uh, you do get taken out to a lot of lunches and dinners as an author. I always say, whoever said there's no such thing as a free lunch never wrote a book. Yeah. You know, can I ask you, um, at, when you saw that reader at the pool, did you approach him? No, it was a woman and I didn't, uh, because the purity of the deal is that, you know, it's got to be unconnected with you. And uh -huh. I didn't, I didn't want to approach, and I never do, I never approach a reader that went, partly because you don't know what kind of response you're going to get. You might get, I mean, likely you're going to get a very polite and enthusiastic response. But then that just means you've got to do the whole shtick for free, you know, on the plane, on the way to the bookstore event. Why do it on the plane as well? Um, you know, go through the whole conversation. But also because you don't know what, what you're going to hear. Uh, I got a good friend, very successful writer, number one bestseller, who was on a plane and the, the person sitting next to him was reading his book. And uh, he, he couldn't resist. He kind of nudged her and said, uh, are you enjoying that? And she said, no, it's shit, but it's all I could find in the airport. <laughs> <laughs> and that was his longest plane ride of his life. Yeah, right. 
you hear all kinds of things from that, you know, because we see it from such a different focus. I had another friend who did the same thing, uh, sort of nudged, nudged the passenger and said, that's my book. And she said, no, it isn't. I bought it in the airport. <laughs> no, no, I birthed it. I had an idea. I yeah. worked on it day after day after day. <laughs> All you're seeing is my pain there. All my hours. <laughs> that would have been my reply, but I just sorry. I got I, I made it about me there for a second. But um, what what was when when you first decide to start writing? I mean, what, what was when did you go? You know what? I'm I'm writing a novel. I'm writing a novel, and here we go. Well, I did it because I had a previous job. I w I was a television director, um, in, for uh, in Britain. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the British television industry was uh, kind of regulated in a way that uh, the idea was to keep it uh, from descending to the bottom of the quality, essentially. You know, it was, it, there were financial rules on it that you could, you could make a huge profit, but not an obscene profit. There was a level above which you were discouraged from going. So a lot of money was spent on programming and a lot of money was spent on staff it was it was just a great time golden era but it came to an end um uh, and i was fired because at that point i was 39 years old i was a very expensive old veteran you know i had a great hourly rate i had a union agreement i had a pension i had benefits life insurance all that kind of stuff and uh, they wanted to cut back those costs enormously so they fired all the old people and i had uh, new people, which is a very common story, obviously, especially back then in the 1990s, everybody was doing it. So I was fired and out of work. And, um, but I, I had loved, I loved the, the whole, the whole idea of entertainment. I don't care particularly what it is that I'm doing, but I just need that thing where I'm beavering away behind the scenes and somebody, a big mass audience is having a wonderful time. Uh, I started out in the theater because I you can actually see it in the theater, you know, because it's happening right in front of your eyes. You've got the stage and you've got the audience and you can watch the audience and just see that entrancement and joy on their face. That's a drug to me, I love it. So I wanted to stay, broadly speaking, in the world of entertainment and, uh, so it was a question of, all right, what can I do that keeps me broadly in that world? And for me, writing a book, so it came on me pretty quickly. I'd been a reader all my life, literally all my life. Loved reading, read tens of thousands of books. But I'd never really thought of, I'd actually never thought of where they come from. I just thought, well, here they are. I had no conception of somebody sitting down and sweating over them and then somebody publishing them. I just thought they were products for the taking. Uh, and then it suddenly came on me, no, actually, somebody writes these and maybe I could do that. And so that was, I thought I'll give myself a year to see if it will work. And uh, it did happily. So, yeah, you know, it was about, people say to me, did you always want to be a writer? And the truth is, no, not really. I didn't want to be a writer at all. You know, I just wanted to be an entertainer. And anything would have done. It just so happens that my talents are not really on stage talent. Uh, you know, I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't tell jokes, 
uh, I'm much more of a backstage person. And so being a book writer actually is the ultimate backstage job because if you're an actor or if you're an athlete or a baseball player or whatever, it is your physical self that is in the marketplace. But as a book writer, it's the book that is in the marketplace. And the writer is two steps behind, safely and comfortably in the shadows. So it suited me really well. I, I call writing show business for shy people because it's the book that, that is talked about, not the person. Of course, that's not entirely true because you end up doing endless promotions and it is about the individuality of the author. But fundamentally, it's the book that's competing, not the human. It's funny because at 39, you wrote your first novel and sometimes I'll have students come into my class and they're in their late 20s and they're like, it's almost over for me. I got to do this before it's too late. And I just crack up. I'm like, we're not in the underwear model business. <laughs> yeah. we, we really, it's, we're actually pretty good. We, we can keep doing this. It's really tough, isn't it? With young people because they are so keen on it and they so want to do it. But it's really the only honest answer you could give to it. And I've done this, you know, you, you're invited to colleges or whatever, and you, you meet with the creative writing class and there's a bunch of 20, what, 20 year olds. Yeah. And why the only honest answer you can give them is wait, you know, just read for the next 20 years and yeah. then do it. Because that is another great thing about writing. Not only can you do it when you're older, you should do it when you're older. You know, your tank has got to be full. You've got to see a lot of the world. You've got to think a lot of thoughts. You've got to get a lot of experience. Then you're ready. And um, it's a terribly dispiriting thing to have to say to young people. But, you know, if you've got a 20-year-old writing student, the only honest answer is you're not going to make it when you're 20. You're not going to make it when you're 25. You know, wait, just read, make sure you're ready. Uh, and, of course, they don't want to hear it. But I honestly believe in the majority of cases, 99% of cases, it's true. You do see novels from 20-year-olds, sometimes 18-year-olds. And usually they're very slick, they are uh, superficially attractive, but they're fundamentally pastiches of something that the kid is into. And there's then very rarely a second novel or a third novel coming behind it. Yeah, that's it. Someone, someone told me this once and it always, I always love the, um, I don't know who said it, but reading is breathing in, writing is breathing out. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and living as a whole is the breathing in. Not, yeah. only, not only the reading, but the, the living, you know, the situations you get into, the people you meet, the things you see, the thoughts you have. It's all got to build up um, until it reaches a kind of critical mass. And if that critical mass happens when you are 25, then great, but that's unlikely. Right. It typically happens halfway through, you know, when you're 40-ish. And even later than that, I mean, um, who was that woman uh, where the crawdads sang, you know, Delia Owens? She was, what, what was she? She was like 70 or something. I you love got, that. You, yeah, me too. You, you know, you wait until you've breathed in enough and then you exhale. And it could be as late as 70 or 80. Yeah. And I love those examples because that's just something I always bring to people. You know, someone says, oh, I'm 60. There's no way. I'm like, stop it. Stop right there. Stop right there. Wait, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of that mindset. 
And yeah, I always bring the underwear model thing in. I'm like, look, I'm not an underwear model. And I don't think you need to be either. So I think many writers should not be underwear. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what is what is your routine like when you are working on a book and you say, OK, here we go. Do, are you a guy who outlines? Or are you a guy who goes blank page? Let's see what we got. Well, you know, my routine was literally a routine that was based on practicality. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to publish one book a year, which is pretty, you know, I think still a great model to do. I think it is a good interval, to be honest, that the, uh, the public won't have forgotten who you are, uh, but they won't be overwhelmed with. I mean, imagine if you published a book every day as a thought experience. Uh, if you published a book every day, most of them would get ignored because nobody could keep up with that. If you published a book every 20 years, then you'd have to reintroduce yourself each time. So one year is a perfect interval, in my opinion. So if you're going to publish once a year, you've got to write one book a year. And so it is fundamentally a chronological issue. So I, I always started on the same day of the year, the 1st of September, partly as a sentimental anniversary of doing the first one, but also acknowledgement of the practicality. You've got to do it. And so that was physically my routine, start on the 1st of September, but I never had any plan or any outline and I never wanted one because for me, it was all about the spontaneity, uh, improvising it at the time, making it up as I went along was what kept the series, I think, fresh and unpredictable because I can you know, out of 24 books you hear about, there's probably 100 different favorite bits or scenes that people quote back at me. And I can identify them. Those were just happy accidents. They spontaneously happened. If you sit there with a completely open mind, then your subconscious will take you the right direction. And I think that if you outline in a front of the brain type of a way. If you outline, you are cutting yourself off from all of those spontaneous happy accidents. And so I never had a plan or an outline. I never had the slightest clue what was gonna happen even in the next line. Sometimes I had a very, very vague idea of how the book might feel or what it might generally be about. You know, at the level of saying, Moby Dick is about a whale. Um, you know, that was the kind of the only planning that I ever did. Uh, so it was a high, high stakes thing and quite, uh, quite effortful, although not really, because if you think about the big planners, they do a whole bunch of planning first and then they do the writing. So mine were kind of integrated together. It was distributed planning. Every line I would be thinking, all right, what's next? So that all that, all that so-called outlining was broken up into a daily task over six months. So I don't think the workload was ever really increased that way, but it did, in my opinion, improve the product tremendously. And it made, to me anyway, made the product feel very authentic. Um, and I would get, you know, an editor afterward would say, uh, wouldn't it be better if this happened after that? And I would say, yeah, probably, but it didn't. Uh, you know, I'm a rational person. I know I'm making it up. I know it's not true. I know these people don't exist. But at the time, it feels like this is what happened. 
And to go back and alter it afterwards seems dishonest to me. So that was another part of my method that I never revised. I would write one draft and that was it. And so it really, as you're, as you're writing the draft, when um, you, go, you would go in and uh, do other edits of maybe, or how, how does that work? Because Well, it basically worked by, uh, you know, I would write all day and then the next day I would start out by checking what I wrote yesterday, check it, smooth it out, uh, polish it up and then move on. So it was a kind of two steps forward, one step back, constant churn throughout the six months. So to say that it's never revised is slightly disingenuous because it, it was kind of revised every day. But then once I'd completed the story, I did not go back and change anything because I felt that it would take the uh, organic nature out of it. It would start to look contrived or plotted or planned rather than a slice of real life. And it's, and I love that because you can, you can let your character continue to surprise you. Is that, is that part of it where, it's, you can stay out of the way and just go, what, what do you have for me next, Jack? Yeah, well, those, are, those kind of phrases are kind of bumper sticker versions of saying, yeah, let your subconscious deal with it. The character taken over is, is a very true concept, but it's, it's a bit artsy-fartsy to sort of say it that way. What you're actually doing is letting your subconscious tell you where to go, which then in turn actually means you are drawing on all the books you've ever read. Because I, I just had to, write, I had to write an essay about this for Mystery Writers of America. They've got a new uh, mystery writing handbook coming out, and they wanted an essay about no outlining. Mm. Because most people outline, and there were plenty of essays about how to do the perfect outline. And they wanted one, you know, how to do no outline. So it really forced me to think about it. And actually... I believe that nobody writes with no outline. You may not have a specific outline that you've written down for that book, but what you've got is your head is kind of pre-programmed by 10,000 books that you've read. And if you're writing in a particular genre, then you've read in that genre. You love that genre. You know that genre. So to say you write with no outline is sort of not true. You write with a total subconscious outline. Every good bit of every good book you've ever read is somehow nudging you this way or that way until you, you finish your own book. And it can, be, it can look fresh and spontaneous, but what, what it really is is you're guided by decades of crowdsourcing. Um, every good book that's ever existed has an influence on what you're doing. And, and what, are, what is a way to tap the subconscious and to get to that point, because I, f I feel like, you know, I mean, but back, you know, years ago, I had to do it by drinking. I, yeah. I had to, I had to, I had to like, it almost like I had to shut off the brain in order to get to it. And then the next, you know, what did they say? Right. Drunk, edit, sober. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but, and then, but there's, then how do you get to that place where you go, all right, I'm tapping it. Well, you have, I mean, I'm, I, plead guilty to chemical assistance as well. You know, I, I, I'm a big pothead and I have been for more than 50 years. And uh, that helps me 
relax and it helps me unwind and, and literally unwind because when you are you know when you're actually doing it you've got a million plates spinning and you've got a million strands all tangling up and what you need to do is relax calm down take a really good look and the more relaxed you are the more zoned out you are you're suddenly going to notice yeah it's that plate that is really important or it's that strand that is really important and you need, and that is the thing that's going to go somewhere. So that relaxed contemplation is super useful uh, and you absolutely need it. Yeah, you can't, uh, you do need perspective. You do need to be able to step back a pace and then step back another pace and look at what you've got. And if you can manage that, then you will see what is important, what is a blind alley, what is fun and you should keep in as a sort of fun counterpoint to the plot, what is extraneous. You need to have that perspective. And I think if you ask 10 writers, how do you get that perspective? You're gonna get 12 different answers. So it's whatever works for you is, is, uh, is, is the only answer to that. I, 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 sometimes I think it's impending death. I'm like, I need to write more before I die. And then all of a sudden it kicks in a little bit. Yeah, or you just put a big stack on your desk, you know, your mortgage payment, your electric bill, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And that focuses your mind as well. Right, right. <laughs> what was it like when um what was it like when they well it must it must have been in development for a while before it got to film, uh, especially with like your your books were optioned for a while and developed and then it finally gets to a Tom yeah, the, Cruise situation? Yeah, the movies were, I mean, literally from, literally from day one, they were always optioned, mm -hmm. uh, which is not unusual. You know, Hollywood works in the reverse way that book publishing works. Uh, book publishing buys very little and then is pretty guaranteed to, to actually make what they buy. And Hollywood's the reverse. They buy everything and make very little. And so I was optioned literally from day one. And uh, I went through the whole, every, every aspect of it. You know, the first option uh, was with Polygram Filmed Entertainment. And Seagram sold that division and it just disappeared. And so it became an orphan project and it lapsed. And then I think uh, Sony Pictures bought it, bought the option. And the executive who was championing it died. So it was literally an orphan project at that point. The new line cinema, and it just went on and on and on on a kind of one-year, two-year basis. But you're getting paid all the time. You're getting the option money. My daughter went to four years of private college on option money. <laughs> uh, you know, it was wonderful. And then in 2005, which is now 15 years ago, um, Paramount Pictures uh, bought the option in one of those complex ownership deals where they had a bunch of partners and one of the partners was Cruz Wagner who was which was uh, Tom Cruise's production company and he intended to be merely an investor and a uh, executive producer on the series and then it was in development as we call it for about six years until eventually a screenplay was written by a guy called Christopher McQuarrie who had a uh, great screenwriter. He'd won an Oscar for The Usual Suspects. And it was an absolutely brilliant screenplay. I mean, just outstanding. 
and it gets circulated by a cur by courtesy to all the producers, everybody involved. They get a copy, and Tom Cruise, as an individual guy, as executive producer, was sent this screenplay, and he read it as an executive producer, and was so knocked out by it that he said, "I want to play the part," and so that is how he got involved. And um, oh, it was a strange history for me because uh you know they they uh I, i'd heard about this that cruz was really impressed and i thought he he's going to want to play the part and sure enough the uh the main the line producers and all of that you know the main guys including macquarie who was going to direct as well <laughs> they called me and said they're flying to new york and they wanted to take me to dinner uh, and the restaurant that they nominated was a real fancy restaurant so i knew by based purely on the status of the restaurant that they were going to talk me into tom cruise being the lead which was problematical in the physical sense but it was brilliant in every other sense i mean the guy is a huge international movie star did i want him promoting my brand you know that is a huge uh, tempting thing because from an author's point of view, promotion is easy enough in the U.S., or in fact hard enough in the U.S., but completely impossible elsewhere. I mean, how do I promote my books in Brazil or Indonesia or China or whatever? It's not possible to do. But the movie will do it for me, especially with Cruz, who, as big as he is in the U.S., is gigantic in the rest of the world. So... Um, I agreed to it on that basis, uh, but it caused a lot of trouble, actually. Cruz was a lovely guy uh, and a terrific actor. I mean, a really nice person, and we had a lot of fun, and I will never regret working with him. But the, the book readers hated the idea because Richer is a huge, shambling giant of a guy, and, uh, you know, Tom Cruise isn't. And they, they found that incompatibility just wrong and uh, they were very unhappy about it so it caused a lot of stress in that sense the movies themselves i, I was really proud of you know they're really good solid throwback uh, action movies really well done especially the first one i thought and uh, i will never regret doing them but they were a bit of a blind alley to be honest and what happened then was i had i don't know why but my my Hollywood lawyer must have a ESP or something because he had put in a clause that after two movies, I had the veto whether there would be any more. And of course, time had moved on. You know, there's a big difference between 2005 and now in that long form narrative television became a thing, uh, you know, streaming off of uh, Netflix or whatever uh, had become a thing. And if you're taking a decision in 2005, feature films was the obvious option, actually the only option. If you're taking a decision now you, for a novel, you would want to go to long form streaming television. So I exercised the veto and said, no more feature films. We'll, we'll do it on television and uh, with a different actor. And so at the time we thought Netflix was the obvious choice because they had uh, that there was a backdoor approach from them. But in the end, it kind of went wider and a whole bunch of people were bidding on it. 
and uh, Amazon was, was the winner. Not, not particularly financially. I mean, they, I, I never judge that on, on money. I always judge it on where is the love, who, who gets it, who is passionate about this. And in this instance, it was Amazon. And so we are moving now to, uh, you know, long streaming seasons on Amazon. We're a bit interrupted by the pandemic, but it is, apart from that, it is all on track and it's going to be great, you know, to have 10 or 12 hours to tell a story instead of 90 minutes is obviously a good thing. And, and the public taste has changed. You know, appointment television is gone. People want to sit and binge in exactly the same way that they sit and read. And so I, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about it. I think it's going to be really good. That does sound fun. Well, how, how, um, so you were pretty involved. Were you on set for the films as well? How, how close were you? I was, uh, yeah, I had a permanent invitation to go. Wow, again, that's I, impressive. I mean, that usually they don't want anyone on the set that, that was right. That they don't, yeah. they don't, but they, you know, they respected the books and therefore respected me as the writer of the books. And it, it was, um, a huge studio production, obviously, you know, the budget was, uh, over a hundred million dollars for each of those movies. But it, it, even so, it felt like a little bunch of Reacher fans making a film. So I had a permanent invitation to go and I did go many times, but I, both, for both the movies ahead of time, I got on the phone with the directors and producers and said, look, this is your project. I am not going to be looking over your shoulder, criticizing you because in my experience, that's a crippling thing. If you're trying to do a job and you're worried about somebody's reaction, you're distracted a little bit and it won't be as good as it could be. So I wanted to make it clear at the beginning, this was their thing. I'm not going to be poking and prodding. Uh, I'll be a guest if I'm invited and I'll have a lot of fun, but I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be carping in the background. Yeah, and I think that that liberated them, and and it was a good thing to do because they concentrated at hundred percent and just did it. Um, and I, but I went a lot, yeah, many times, and I, I, I was a cameo in both movies. I had a little, uh, little part, and um, I enjoyed it because you know, like I said, I had worked in television before, and um, a TV drama set is not a million miles from a, a big movie set. And so I, I, it was like coming home in a way. It was, uh, it was very familiar to me and a lot of good fun. And, and, and how I would have decided what days to be on set is I would have been, what's the menu on craft services? <laughs> yeah, well, the menu was always wonderful. You know, that's, <laughs> they, they, yeah, it really was. And, yeah. uh, you know, $100 million, gotta, I'd be there every day. I'd be like, what's breakfast? Yeah, what's lunch? <laughs> You get a driver and you get the whole thing and, uh, yeah. you know, you, you can get your hair cut and all that. Kind of right, thing. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you done with Cruz's gel? Great. I need a little off the back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, the beauty of that. <laughs> Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate this. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Lee Child on Drinks with Tony, check out The Nicotine Chronicles, the book he edited for Akashic Books, as well as The Sentinel, the 25th Jack Reacher novel he co-wrote with his brother. What? You want more Drinks with Tony? 
I'll see you next week when Iris Berry is our guest, Kevin Smokler is on November 25th, Daniel Tunnard on December 2nd, and Paul Madonna is on the show on December 9th. And the writer of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is coming on the show. Be excellent to each other and party on. I'll see you next Wednesday.